Good evening. Tonight is not going to be a cheery evening. Hopefully it will be a cheery evening with the knowledge that we're all sitting here happy and healthy and not around any of these massacres or tragic events. But in learning about these events, we're going to see that there were more than just world events, which they were, but events like the Crusades and the Black Plague had disproportionate effects amongst the Jewish people, effects that echo especially amongst Ashkenazi Jewry to our very own day. As long as, and we had discussed this in a previous lecture, the Eastern Empire, the Byzantine Empire, with its seat in Constantinople, was a viable kingdom, was a powerful kingdom. The Roman Empire, the Christian Vatican, the Western European countries did not meddle into the Middle East. As we mentioned a few lectures ago, with the conquest of the Muslims, the Byzantine Empire lost all of North Africa, most of the Middle East. And in the 11th century, in the early 11th century, a new group of Muslims became dominant. It was a Turkish group, the Sejuk Turks, and they conquered most of the Islamic world. Their coming to power further weakened the Byzantine Empire and opened the door for Rome and the Vatican to assert itself in the Holy Land, something which they had not done previously. As you will see, that the, the Crusades originated with Rome in the year 1095. However, the groundwork, the background to this cataclysmic event was, was being sown for hundreds of years previously. Ever since the fall of, Ro of Rome as an empire, the barbaric tribes we mentioned with the coming of the Jews to France and Germany, the Franks, the Visigoths, the, uh, the Goths, the Huns, they all took over different parts of Europe. And in their place we have something called the Dark Ages. Now, some people are more charitable and they call it the Middle Ages, but indeed they were Dark Ages. And the feudal system became dominant in Europe. In the feudal system, the church had a vested interest. And they would be, quite arguably, for much of these dark ages, at the top of the hierarchy of the European feudal system. And it is for that reason that the Pope was called, already from the Latin word, Papa, or Father, the Pope. Right? He was the Father of Europe. He was the Papa, or the Pontiff, right? the chief priest, of Europe. The church found itself as the greatest landowner in Europe. That started with the taking over of pagan temples and pagan lands. And as the greatest landowner in Europe, guess what? They had the most peasants in Europe. And therefore they had a vested interest in keeping the system at bay. And by the 11th century, there was you know, historians, new, I mean, you, you read the, all, every, every 
you know, prominent historian who deals with the Crusades, at least partial to the Church's reason for causing the Crusades was they had an abundance of knights, they had an overpopulation of Europe, and there were real reasons to go ahead and use these knights if you have a whole standing armies, which their whole lives were, were being in preparation for war, and there are no wars, and there are peasants, and there's an overpopulation, and we needed more land to sustain this kingdom. So the church had a vested interest in causing um, the crusades. They had a vested interest in using all the knights who were beginning to, to, to rummage throughout Western Europe. Um, in fairness, you know, when you think of the crusades, everyone thinks, here come these Christian, the Catholics, going to attack the Muslims, these innocent Muslims, these little, these innocent Muslims just sitting there in the Holy Land doing nothing. The Muslims throughout, from the 7th century onwards, were constantly attacking Europe. It's funny how everyone looks at the Crusades, like the, you know, certainly in Islamic thought, and we'll see the Christians did not give up for two centuries to reconquer um, the Holy Land. But we think like the Muslims were innocent individuals just sitting there in the Holy Land, and one day the church woke up and decided to attack them. Well, First of all, you have to remember that the Muslims themselves conquered all of the Holy Land from the Christians. But beyond that, we, as we discussed in France in the 8th century by Tours, the Muslims were constantly trying to conquer Europe. It was only after losing that they stopped. Constantinople was attacked for hundreds of years. Constantly under attack. And that's why Constantinople today is called Istanbul. Okay? They were no better in this war. But the Crusades would have impacts beyond the, the Turks. The ostensible reason, and the reason that Pope Urban II gave for the Crusades, was to reclaim the Church, the church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, which many Christians, and at that time all Christians, believe was the um, death place where, where Jesus was buried. That was based on the mother of Constantine on Helena, who claimed, why she claimed, no one has a real historical uh, verification, she claimed that that was where um, he was buried. It happened to also have been, and that's why the Protestants and the Anglicans do not really give this church any credence, that site of the Holy uh, Church, Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is one of the most important churches for the, for the Vatican, for the Eastern Orthodox churches, was a temple. It was the main temple in Jerusalem. It was a temple of Aphrodite, which Hadrian built, and which we discussed that Hadrian built temples in Jerusalem after the Bar Kokhba revolt. Well, one of the greatest temples was where the church um, is today. It was the church of Aphrodite. Now, already Eusebius of Caesarea, of Caesarea, claims that Hadrian was just trying to cover up um, where Jesus died, but historically it's hard to contend this, and therefore just you should know today that, that the Protestants, the Anglicans, do not view this as a holy place. The Catholic Church certainly does. If you go to Via Dolorosa, you know, on uh, on the Christian holidays, they'll be marching all along there. But those are not Protestant denominations, not the Anglican. Those are those are Catholics, Eastern Orthodox churches, the Armenian Church. And they all share control over this church. The funny thing is, every year or two, you know, if you look at the news, they get into fistfights. You know, recently they had, they, they, they had people killed their pre, in the past century. 
you know, because these churches all have territory, all have some controlling stake um, in this great church, so they fight amongst each other. And you know, you know, few, few, a couple of years ago, they're throwing ch- chairs at each other. They kick each other out. If one is like lines where they can walk, and if any of the bishops from a different church walk past this line, it's, you, it's viewed as um, you know walking on their territory. Well, Perp Urban II um, viewed this as walking on um, Christian territory. Now, when you look at the Crusades, certainly in the literature of the 13th, 14th centuries, 12th century as well, though there was less, it's viewed as being a time of great chivalry, time of great adventure, a time of, you know, noble que- a noble quest. And while there were nobles, the First Crusade had no great kings leading it. It was all nobles and many, many peasants. Um, later Crusades, the Second and Third Crusade especially, would have many of the European kings trying to stake out fame. These nobles, we'll see, were not really so noble. And there's not so much chivalry that went along. And wherever they le- went, they left a path of brutal destruction, murder, rape, and many other uh, crimes against humanity. Now, the Jews, by the way, were incidental to the Crusades. And the main purpose were to attack the infidels, the Muslims. In the, in the, 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 all of the Crusader literature refers to infidels. Now, infidel usually means a non-believer, but the way the Crusaders said it, they were going to attack the infidels, the non-believers in Jesus. And there were ten crusades. I'm going to briefly go through these ten crusades, just for background information. Um, and, you know, the crusades, we're going to focus on the Jews, but suffice to say that the Muslim world still, I mean, you, you, don't, you don't have to read any Islamic paper, they, they are still traumatized by these crusades. Many um, sociologists say that the reason that it's in Muslim society painted the doors blue, right, it was because of the blue eyes of the crusaders to ward off the crusaders' eyes. I mean, these, to this day, they view the Western Christian world with disdain or lack of trust or as crusaders, as we look at it as a pejorative, as people meddling into their countries who have no business being there. There were ten crusades. The first crusade was in the year 1095 to, to 1100, which was the taking of Jerusalem from the Muslims. It, the, the entire Muslim and Jewish population of Jerusalem was pretty much um, wiped out. And there was an establishment of a crusader-run Latin kingdom with four provinces. This kingdom would stay in its glory to only 1187. So less than a hundred years. But there would be Christians throughout the Holy Land during that time. The second crusade was to organize, and that was in 1147 to 1149, was organized to help the Christians recover lands, which was the county of Edessa, which they had lost to the, to the Turks. It ended in a dismal failure. It was led by the kings of uh, King Louis VII of France, Emperor Conrad III of Germany, and the spiritually with the Saint Bernard who we'll discuss, but they fought amongst themselves and the Turks were able to defeat them when they reached Odessa. The third crusade was, was in reaction to Saladin, and we'll discuss Saladin, reconquering Jerusalem. It was led by 
made famous by Robin Hood, King Richard the first, the lion-hearted of England, one of the worst kings England ever have, a complete, utter failure, um, and an anti-Semite, as we'll see soon. Um, but he was, because of Robin, he's one of the most famous kings of England. Um, he, was, he was defeated decisively by Saladin in several battle, bat, and battles. The Fourth Crusade was the last serious crusade um, against the Arabs. That was from 1202 to 1204. And this is unbelievable, just to see the violence of these crusaders. They went ahead, this is Pope Innocent III, goes ahead and rallies everyone to reconquer Jerusalem, which had been conquered again by Saladin. He gets a large part of the French nobility. And they couldn't pay, they had to pay by ship, they didn't have the money to pay for ships. So the Venetians wanted to knock out Constantinople as, as a uh, as a competitor. This is Eastern Orthodox Church at the time. They said, we'll take you to Constantinople, destroy Constantinople, and then we'll give you a free, a free ride to the Holy Land. So literally, these crusaders, this is one of the largest cities in the ancient world, they sacked Constantinople, destroyed the city. I mean, if you read the literature of the sacking of Constantinople, they beheaded people on, in, in, on the streets. They were dancing in the streets of Constantinople like wild animals. The Pope was aghast at first, but he was actually, after, was very happy because now it gave the Church uh, a strong place in the Byzantine Empire. And until, for political deviation, 70 years later, the Crusaders actually ruled over Constantinople. The Fifth Crusade, and they never got to the Holy Land, the, fifth, the, 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 the next Crusade was the Children's Crusade, which is mind-boggling. This crusade in 1212 sent thousands, tens of thousands of little teenagers, many under 12, they specifically took teenagers, to march to the Holy Land against the Taliban, and they were all either wiped out or sold into slavery. The fifth crusade, from 1217 to 1221, they didn't even end, end up in the Holy Land, they ended up going into Egypt, they conquered one town, killed every Muslim and Jew in the town, and within a year they lost the town back to the Muslims. The Sixth Crusade, which was 1228 to 1229, was by Emperor Frederick II of the Holy Roman Empire. What he did is he, for somehow or other, he negotiated, he brought an army to Jerusalem, he negotiated the Arabs for control of Jerusalem, and he actually had control of Jerusalem for about 15 years. The Seventh Crusade was by King Louis IX. They were completely routed in 1254. He was captured, including all of his nobles. They had to ransom them at an exorbitant price to free them. The Eighth Crusade um, was again left, left led by King Louis IX. And as revenge, he didn't give up. He got to Tunis, died in Tunis, and the Crusade died with him there. They returned to uh, Europe. There were two more crusades um, in the 13th century, but both failed. And by 1291, Akko, which was the last Christian fort, um, was conquered by the Muslims, thus ending 200 years of Christian um, presence as uh, crusaders in the Holy Land and ending the crusades. Interestingly enough, parenthetically, before we get to the details, the fact that the crusaders built forts throughout the Holy Land, which many of them were destroyed by the Muslims. They didn't want them coming back. And some of them are still there to this day. If you go, you can, you can, you can see them. But the coastal area of Israel was never repopulated. 
the Muslim population was always concerned that they would come back again. They were always concerned that one day, if there's a population here, the Christians may have a reason to come back. And they, they were never probably... 700 years later, when a guy like named Theodor Herzl and a few Jews in Russia started thinking, let's go back to the Holy Land ourselves, that is where the Jewish settlement starts because there's no one living there. Netanya, Tel Aviv, Haifa, all of these, the, the Gushtan area going down, which is where all, why did the Jewish settlement begin there? It could have began anywhere because those were non-populated areas. Since the time of the Crusades, they had been depopulated. Therefore, when the Jews came there, they bought that land immediately. No one was living there. The call to the Christian faithful, faithful for a holy crusade against the Islamic infidels was issued by Pope Urban II on November 26, 1095. It was as a result of the Byzantine emperors Alexius Comnenus who asked for help because at, for the time the Turks had come into Jerusalem in 1071 uh, and took it over from other Muslims, they no longer allowed Christian pilgrims a free ride into the, to visit the Christian sites. They gave them a rough treatment, and many of the Christians were upset about that. Look at source number one. You have, you have the sermon of Pope Urban II? A grave report has come um, from the lands of Jerusalem, from the city of Constantinople, that a people from the kingdom of the Persians, a foreign race, a, ra- a race absolutely alien to God, okay, that's not really called pluralism over there, had invaded the, the, the land of those Christians and has reduced the people with a sword wrapped iron and fire. Let those who in the past have been accustomed to spread private words so vilely amongst the faithful. Look at now, you hear. Pope Urban II, this is his sermon to start the Crusades. They were already fighting against the faithful. They're fighting amongst each other. The, the knights have nothing to do. Advance against the infidels. That those who were formerly brigands now become soldiers of Christ. Those who once waged war against their brothers fight lawfully against barbarians. Those who until now have been mercenaries for a few coins achieve eternal Reward and to sweeten the pie, of course, the Pope promised eternal reward. You will be annulled from your sins. You'll be annulled from your debts. Well, he received an enthusiastic response. Tens of thousands of knights, hundreds of thousands, according to others, of peasants, not all of them made it to the Holy Land, all set off on this crusade. The knights and the infantry all had a red, large, a large red cross on their outer garments, which is why they got the name Crusaders. Crux, the cross, is how they got the name. They themselves called themselves pilgrims. They did not call themselves Crusaders. It was only later that uh, they were called Crusaders. With this group of knights, also many peasants, why not? What did you have to gain to be a peasant in Europe? A peasant had an awful existence. It was not really a pretty because you worked from night to day. Here you were being let go, free to attack the Holy Land. A chance for wealth in this world and promises of spiritual wealth in the next world. A chance to pillage, a chance to 
you know, run amok, and that's what they did. So the peasants in mass joined this crusade. Well, the knights and the nobles, they came with supplies. The peasants were peasants, and they didn't have bank accounts, and they didn't have much supplies. So as these peasants are leaving France, some even from England and Flanders, Germany, they're going to look around for supplies. Now remember, old, even our constitution, is part of our constitution, about quartering soldiers. That's how it used to be in the old days. In the old days, armies didn't walk around with canteens. They would often be quartered. They didn't just get quartered, they pillaged for supplies. And guess who they went to first? The Jews. Right? In fact, the Jews at that time, and we'll see as we discuss further tonight, were already, the tide was turning against them. The Jews, historically, as we discussed Christianity, the popular image of a Jew starting from John of Christendom and many other of the church preachers was that of the devil, the Antichrist, the killer of Christ, as invented in the New Testament and as preached by many of the early church fathers. As I discussed in the lecture of Christianity, much of it was because we were the competition in the beginning, but that was ensconced in Christian literature. All you have to do is be a monk. You're going to read early fathers saying, the Jews, and that's what they, they, they relied upon. The religious hysteria of the Crusaders was prompted by people like Peter the Hermit, who were one of the leaders of the Crusaders. Peter, Peter the Hermit, who was a preacher, impassioned, had impassioned verbal attacks against the Jews. And he told the knights, he said, we're going all the way to the Holy Land to kill infidels. Why are we going so far out of our country to kill infidels? We have them in our own country. They didn't have Muslims in Western Europe, in Christian Europe. They had Jews. Right? And he said, just like you can earn reward for killing the infidels in the Holy Land, you can earn reward for killing the infidels amongst us. Thousands of Jews, and we'll get to the details in a minute, and the synagogues were burnt alive by crusaders. European records, these are secular European records, record 350 communities destroyed over the period of the Crusaders. Look at source number two. This is Godfrey of Bouillon, who was one of the leaders of Crusaders. Some said the first king of Jerusalem of the Crusader kingdom. To go on this journey only after avenging the blood of the crucified one by shedding Jewish blood and completely eradicating any trace of those bearing the name Jew thus assaging his own burning wrath. Now, Emperor Henry IV, who was notified of Godfrey's intent by um, uh, Calmanus of Mainz, who was a head of the Jewish community of Mainz, actually gave, gave um, Godfrey, who was a high knight in his kingdom, a warning, don't touch um, the Jews. So Godfrey himself just monetary took, took money from the Jews. I mentioned Godfrey, remember the last lecture with Rashi? That he went to Rashi and promised him that if he does comes back with the three horses, that was Godfrey of Bouillon. Sigurd of Gomlio was also one of the, the heads of the spiritualists of the crusade. He was a Benedictine monk and historian. Also said, before you fight a war on behalf of the Lord in the Holy Land, you gotta convert the Jews of Europe. 
And those, this is a quote, those who don't should be deprived of their goods, massacred, and expelled from the cities. Through these people's actions, this is mind-boggling, 30 to 50% of Ashkenazi Jewry, now the numbers are not great, it was somewhere about 10,000 Jews were murdered out of 20 to 30,000. Remember I said at the time of Crusades, only 3% of European world Jewry is Ashkenaz. But this wipes out Ashkenazi Jewry. This is the days before guns, before weapons of mass destruction, be they cannons or planes or tanks. These people were killed in cold blood with swords or lances or burnt alive. Henry IV stopped Godfrey, but he didn't stop Count Amicio. Count Amicio was one of the leaders of the peasants. He took 10,000 men, women, and children through the Rhine Valley. And at the time when he went, Henry IV had been, went to Italy. He ordered, he left an order for the Jews to be protected. This is as the Crusades are going on. This is eight months into the Crusades. Um, but his orders were not listened to. First they stopped by spires. Now the spires, the bishop um, protected, and listen to the difference of how the bishops, the differences in the cities. In spires, the bishop protected um, the, the Jews, and only 12 Jews were slain. But the next city was Worms. And in Worms, the bishop tried to protect them, but he didn't give a full hard effort, and 800 Jews were slain. Amongst them, historians we know, who witnesses were there say there was a lady named Mina who was, who was apparently very close to many of the um, nobility of Worms who was um, basically given a choice of conversion, that is baptism, or um, being slaughtered and she was put to death. She was an extremely wealthy lady and apparently made a big um, effect on the people around them. Several people in Worms were drowned. Marsh Mariah was buried alive with his entire family. And as they're burying them, they kept offering them, do you want to convert? They offered them the, the possibility of conversion as they buried these people alive. They did not do it. In some places, such as Regenburg in Germany, they didn't even give them a choice. They took the Jews, forcibly threw them into the Danube and baptized them against their will. Um, Siegbert, who I just mentioned, the, the monk, writes that after, um, after they left, many, most of these Jews actually went back to Judaism, but they were baptized against the, the will. When Amitra, though, got to Mainz, that is where um, it, got, it was the, the most bloody city, at least in the First Crusade. Right? And Mainz was a large, powerful German city and a very strong Jewish community. Remember, Rashi studied in Mainz. And Mainz was where the first yeshiva was. Remember, we discussed the House of Colonimus. He, That family was still prominent in Mainz. And when he first got to Mainz, the bishop of the town, Ruthard, tried to protect the Jews. But Amitra did not prevent his followers from coming in. Some of the Jews were hid by their friends who were amongst them, the burghers. And, but many other of the local population joined these crusaders. They 
went ahead and ended up slaughtering 1,100 Jews in cold blood in Mainz. Amongst them, Mar Yitzchak ben David, who first baptized himself, then felt awful about it, and to save his family from that fate, burnt him, his family, and the synagogue, which was returning to a church, um, um, to shreds. Another woman, Rachel, killed her four children, so they should not be forcibly converted if they killed her. And many other Jews there killed themselves rather than have the possibility of them or their children being taken for a conversion. Colonimus, who was the head of the German community of Mainz, a very affluent, prominent individual who had a connection to King Henry IV, as mentioned, him and 53 companions were taken by the bishop to his palace and protected for a time. But the bishop himself then said to him after a few days, if you don't baptize yourself, I'm no longer keeping you here. Colonius then killed his children that they should not be um, put under the, under the uh, church and then tried to actually kill the Bishop of Mainz in his anger. He himself was killed. Over 1,100 Jews, many of them Torah scholars, were killed in Mainz. There is a kina, a lamentation that we say every Tishabov for these Jews. Elazar ben Natan, who was one of the people alive um, at the time, he, you know, used the Pesach and Habakkuk talking about how Mainz was attacked, and he basically paraphrased it and said, "Cruel foreigners, fierce and swift, Frenchmen and Germans, who put crosses on their clothing were more plentiful than locusts on the face of the earth." That's a, a paraphrase of Pesach in Habakkuk one six, talking about the locust, right, overwhelmed Mainz and destroyed it. This Count Dimitri, parenthetically, never make it made it to the Holy Land. Because when he got to Hungary, he tried to do the same thing on the Hungarians, um, but the Hungarian army put him down and put him into place. The results for the Jews of the Crusades was literally, you have to imagine, I mean, it's not United States of America, but you can imagine in, in, in even, let's say, France today. You know, you look at French Jewry, yeah, it's somewhat comfortable, but precarious. Can you imagine... In a minute, things can change. In a minute, even to this very day, eh, you know, the, the people think we're, it's stable. If you've been in the Weimar Republic in Nazi Germany, within four years, your whole, you, had, you had a Jewish ministers in the government to, to Hitler. <laughs> I, I mean, you talk about a night and day, a completely different reality. Well, the Jews were always um, persecuted in, in Europe under the Christians. However, this was the first time since the rise of the Muslim world was wholesale persecutions. Not minor pogroms or partisans were sometimes a rebellion against the upper class and a rebellion against government. This was purposeful, intentional murder of Jews and as many Jews as they can get. It was people forcibly being forcibly converted, people who had lived in places for decades or centuries were just attacked simply because they were Jew, with no choice but to convert or die. If you read the, the literature of the day, um, you, I mean, you hear the anger of the Jews who survived. Uh, Amisho is always mentioned as Hashem Hashem Yerkev, his bones should be ground to dust. The Pope is compared to Satan. Um, there are many Jews that the Hebrew literature brings down where they, they said they will convert. They had masses, all of them gathered gleefully around them. And 
then they would, you know, say that Christ was a failure, or fake, or, you know, it came from adultery, which were adulterous, I think, and they were quickly killed. Um, the tragedy was greater in scope, not only because of the percentage of Ashkenazi Jews who were wiped out, but a lot of them were the cream of the crop. They were the sages. This, this was a very literate, to my the children or grandchildren of Rashi, come out many of the Tosfuses. They were very they were Torah scholars. Many of the works we have came from them and their children. It created a conflict in Jewish thought. Because here you had Jews committing suicide. We know that suicide is one of the most egregious things a Jew can do. There's no shiva. You don't mourn for a Jew who commits suicide, strictly speaking, according to Jewish law. By the way, it's worth it to mention halakhically. This is very applicable to end of life person needs to have end-of-life planning, if you just say, I'm going to do not resuscitate, there are times where that's suicide. I mean, there's no difference if you pull a gun to yourself or you tell a doctor to kill yourself. Um, at times it's permissible, at times it's not. You have to know the, the strict letter of the law. But Jews never committed suicide. So they had to go back to biblical or um, Roman time examples of Jews at Masada, Jews in the times of the Greeks, King Saul, to say to themselves, how could they do this? Right, there were Jews for the first time who were converted to Christianity. Some against them, their will. Some as out of fear of death. Well, how are you going to deal with this new reality? And more profoundly, the Jewish people would never be able till the Holocaust and through the Holocaust to trust their Christian neighbors. Because that their friends, their neighbors, were amongst those that rose up against them. Right? The people they worked with, and we would see this repeated in, for decades later in, in different situations, be it with Chalmaniki later in Eastern Europe, or Hitler, or Stalin, their friends and their people that they thought they were friends, and their protectors, stabbed them in the black. No longer would a Jew ever be able to say, as I mentioned last week, talking about the three cities, that Mainz is our Jerusalem in Germany. Right? The Jew would now be keenly aware that their existence in Christian Europe was at best perilous, at best unstable, and never secure. Right? We would see this from now on through the Crusades. Jews, whenever they talk about Christian Europe, it's always with wariness. The Christians went marching on those of the knights conquered Antioch in Turkey and got to the Holy Land. When they got to the Holy Land, one of the first places they reached was, was a settlement near modern-day Haifa. And there was a Jewish settlement there. There were 50 Jewish settlements when the Crusaders marched into the Holy Land. Some were allowed to stay. Others were completely annihilated. Haifa, this settlement near Haifa was there. And for a while, they, they single-handedly defended this settlement but ultimately they lost and were completely slaughtered. When the Christians got to the, the gates of Jerusalem, they were led by Godfrey of de Bouillon, Raymond of Gallias, Raymond of Flanders, Robert of Normandy. And what happened when they came into the city? What did the Christians do when they got to the city? Well, we have accounts. Some of them were from Muslims, others from Jews. In the account of Ibn al-Kamanasi, who was a Muslim chronicler, he discusses that they basically killed the civilian population. 
thousands of Muslims, men, women, and children, little kids, were killed. We're not talking about defenders of the city. Children were killed throughout the streets of Jerusalem. The Jews all ran to the synagogue after defending the city, and they were burnt alive in a synagogue in Jerusalem. The entire Jewish population of Yushalayim at the time was burnt alive. So much so that when Nachmanis would come to Jerusalem two centuries later, which we'll discuss in the next lecture, there would be eight Jews that he could pick up in the surrounding area around Jerusalem. Look at the next quote. This is a quote of Raymond of Aguilar, one of the main conquerors and crusaders in the fall of Jerusalem. With the fall of Jerusalem and its towers, one could see marvelous work. Some of the pagans, right, they heard talking about Muslims and Jews, were mercifully beheaded. Mercifully beheaded! Others, pierced by arrows, plunged from towers, and yet others tortured for a long time, <coughs> and were burned to the death in searing flames. Piles of heads, hands, and feet lay in the houses and streets, and men and knights were sunning to and fro over corpses. Not so chivalrous. The Crusaders, when they did conquer um, Israel, they built palaces and fortresses, really, in all of the areas. Again, some of them are still here. Many of them were destroyed uh, by the Muslims upon conquering the land, lest they come back. Um, they did have several orders of military monks. Now, they had a, basically a military kingdom in the Holy Land for the, the period they were there. Some of them were military monks, and a couple of them are interesting. They're the Knights of Templars and the Knights of the Hospitallers. The Knights of Templars were stationed on the Temple Mount. Now, interestingly enough, right, they did not destroy what the Dome of the Rock or the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Many historians speculate because they destroyed mosques around. They were not kind to mosques. They were not kind to places of worship. They did live up the Western Wall, as we know, and they did not destroy, which no one knows why they left the Western Wall. Again, you know, God's watching over it. Um, but they didn't, many of said they didn't destroy the mosques because of the names they gave them. They called, the Crusaders called the, the Dome of the Rock the Temple of Solomon, and they called the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the Palace of Solomon. Right? So, many of many sort of they made a mistake, and because of these areas, they didn't um, destroy. That's sort of the Templars came from the Temple. The Knights of Templars were the Temple. The other were the Knights of Hospitallers. Now, remember, one of the reasons for the Crusades was to allow Christian pilgrims to come. Well, you need Hospitallers, which will get hospitality, hospice, hospitals to take care of the sick and to greet the pilgrims on their um, seeing Jerusalem, Nazareth, and Bethlehem. Um, they were not so hospitable to the Jews. They didn't let any Jews into Jerusalem. Um, in fact, they took Arab Christians um, into Jerusalem in their place. The next crusade, and I just want to mention this briefly, was a second crusade. Um, and in that crusade, the, it, they the um, the net result was that the Jews were spared to a large extent. German Jews were totally spared for the most part. French Jews were attacked and some were killed. But it could have been much worse if it were not for an individual called Bernard of Clairvoy who came against 
one of the other leaders of this crusade, a Rudolf. This Rudolf was going exactly like Peter the Hermit. First, let's kill the Jews. The first crusade affected the Jews of Germany. Let's get the Jews of France. This Bernard of Clairvoy basically protected uh, the Jews largely. Look at the next quote. This is, however, Fryam of Bonn and his safer Zechariah. Zechariah. God heard our supplication, turned to us, and had mercy on us in accord with the fullness and of his pity and loving kindness. He sends after the wicked one, Rudolf, a proper monk, great and truly the master to all monks, knowledgeable in their law and a man of understanding. His name was Bernard the Abbot of Clairvoy in France, when not for the mercies of our Creator in sending us that Abbot in his epistles, Israel would have been left without remnant investors. You see how one person, one individual, basically spared all of French Jewry because he stood up against this other and he was the highest abbot and he stood up nevertheless Jews some Jews were killed in Würzburg and other areas in 1187 Sultan Saladin who well as we discussed in that lecture was the one of the great sultans of the Middle East and his doctor was a famous Jew named Maimonides Sultan of Saladin one of the most famous battles of the Middle Ages and the hordes of Hedon beat back Right, the Christians, especially Richard, Richard Lionhearted, it was hot. The Christian knights were wearing armor, and it was in the summer, and they got wiped out by Saladin. And Saladin knocked them out of the hordes, and he didn't ultimately uh, reconquered Jerusalem. In the Third Crusade, um, they killed 150 Jews in York, amongst them one of the great Tosfuses of Rabbeinu Yamtov. For the Crusades, we, st- we still mourn in Sphero, mentions mentions of them in Sphero, between Sphero Omer, and on Tishabov. How did the church react? Well, the church at some level, even though many of their bishops, monks, and abbots were pushing for it, there were popes and who put out a constitution of Jews to protect the Jews because it became so vulgar and so vile and so toxic for Jews that even with these constitutions of these bulls put by the popes um, they were, had to be reinstated dozens of times because they were not listened to but let's look at an act, extracts of one of the Sico Judeus which is called um, the constitution of Jews put out by Alexander III we'll read the, the bulls the Jews ought to suffer no prejudice for we make the law that no Christian compel them unwilling or refusing by violence to come to baptism. Indeed, he is not considered to possess the true faith of Christianity who is not recognized to have come to Christian baptism, not spontaneously, but unwillingly. Two, no Christian ought to presume to injure their persons or with violence to take their property or to change their good customs which they have until now in whatever region they inhabit. Let's skip to the last one. If anyone, however, shall attempt the tenor of this degree once known to go against it, let him be punished by the vengeance of excommunication unless he correct his presumption by making equivalent satisfaction. Well, it does sound like the Jews would be protected. But once the genie had come out of the box, the Jews were constantly, the next several hundred years, murdered, forcibly converted, expelled from Christian 
countries. Let me just give you some examples. Major expulsions. Jews were expelled from England in 1290. France twice in 1306, 1394. Hungary, 1340. This is from the whole country, by the way. There are hundreds of times they're expelled from cities. From Hungary in 1349-1360. From the German states in 1348 and 1498. From Austria in 1421. From Lithuania in 1445 and 1495. From Spain, of course, in 1492. And from Portugal from 1497. This starts with the Crusades and continues further. It also started to an extent with the new millennium. With the new millennium came what historians said was a new piety. Right? Christians thought the end of the world was coming because so far, you know, Jesus had said he'd come soon. The Christian Bible itself, the, the, the Christian Testament says that it's going to be a short time till he comes. Well, by the millennium, you know, all kinds of wackos waiting for him to come and a lot new religious passion. They started marginalizing the Jews. In fact, whenever the Jews became not economically profitable for them, they kicked them out. And they impoverished the Jews. There was something called Jew taxes. Basically, Jew taxes, if you have a tea party at the time, or upset about taxes today, they wouldn't be able to imagine what it meant to be as a Jew in these countries. The Jews were pillaged, robbed, and taxed to death. Okay? And they were not able to form a tea party against it. Listen to that. Listen to in Germany. There were 38 special taxes against, just specifically, for Jews. Amongst these taxes was a tax to be born, a tax to die, a tax to wear a kippah, a tax to be married, now a tax to be circumcised. So eight days after you pay a tax to be born, pay a tax to be circumcised a tax to buy Shabbos candles a tax to exempt you for the German army which you couldn't have served anyways because you were a Jew but you had to be taxed because you weren't in the German army and every time they became impoverished or, or they were need, needed or, or kings needed money for example King Philip II of France in 1182 was short on cash well expel the Jews pillage their money raid their bank accounts forgive their debts and, they're go- and we're good to go. When you hear an unbelievable fact, then 13th century England, this is remarkable, before the Jews were expelled, there were approximately 2 million Christians in England and 5,000 Jews. Of those 5,000 Jews in England, they paid 20% of the taxes out of 2 million Christians. 20% of the taxes. And the day where they were completely impoverished, right, they were taxed to death where they couldn't be anymore, that when they got to that point where they were now wards of the states, pretty much, they were expelled. And of course they were expelled on Tishabov in the year 1290. Look at the Edict of Expulsion of King Edward I. The next uh, source Therefore we, in requital of their crimes and for the honor of the crucified, have banished them from our realms as traitors. We do hereby make totally null and void all penalties and usuries and whatsoever else. Maybe a claim on account of Jewry. Pay them out to us at such convenient times as be determined to you. So if you owe money to the Jews, the king will take it instead. Okay? Jews would not be allowed back into England until Oliver Cromwell and the Puritan Revolution 
in the 1650s. Okay, there'll be no Jewish presence in England. Um, we will discuss at a further date the return of the Jews to England. The Jews were also forced into the undesirable role of moneylenders. Right? And how did this happen? Well, around the first millennium, not only did the Christians become a new piety, well, the, the system was changing. We now have a middle class. And we have burghers and a bourgeoisie starting up. The bourgeoisie had rules. You had to join a guild. Guess who was ineligible to join guilds? Guilds. Jews! Jews could not now no longer be goldsmiths, silversmiths, glass blowers. They were excluded from owning land and, whole, and having um, peasants do that. They were excluded from being um, office. As opposed to Spain, which we discussed a couple lectures ago, they cannot be doctors to the, and they cannot be lawyers. So they were pushed out of many, many careers. But now that they pushed out of certain careers, they were forced into others. Because in the 12th century, the church under the bishops started having what's called Lateran councils. In one of these councils, they made certain decrees. One of them, that bishops have to be celibate, and the priests have to be celibate. In that same council, it was a second Lateran council, they said that Christians were not allowed um, to lend each other money with interest, which will change over time. Well, if Christians can't lend money to people to interest, who's going to run the economy? They're not dumb, right? You need, you know, they're, they're not communists. They don't realize that you have to have some capitalistic uh, incentive over here. We'll use the Jews. The Jews were pushed into it. In fact, in certain cities, there were rules. Remember last time I said you had to have the privilege to be in a city? Well, you didn't have a right to be anywhere you wanted. One of the privileges was that every Jewish community had to have a certain amount of moneylenders. If you wanted to live in the land, you had to have a certain amount of moneylenders. Being a moneylender was very precarious. Because just remember what you said. Whenever the knights or the kings would want to be free of their debts, well, let's get rid of the Jews. We immediately... Imagine the United States government has a $14 trillion debt. Let's say that they can just erase that $14 trillion debt in a minute. Hey, you just get rid of a few undesirables. You know, it would be very, very tempting to do such a thing. Especially if they're the killers of Christ. Especially if they dress differently. Especially since they're not popular and the priests are going around chanting about them anyways. The nobility and the kings had a vested interest. Well, what about in war? If you lost the war, you think you're going to pay back your debts? So the interest rates were very high because they very often got burnt. How high were they? Well, they were usually about 35 to 45%. That was nothing, by the way, because when these countries lost the Jewish um, moneylenders, they brought in the Lombards, the, the Italian banks, the Medici's and all them. Their interest rate was about 250%. <laughs> okay? But, you know, I've, I've, even, I've, I've even read literature by, you know, certain historians, and maybe the Jews brought this amongst, about, about themselves. It's very hard to say that when you're forced into a, into a profession, right, that were inevitably was an undesirable profession, you brought this upon yourself, and even when they charged it, it was significantly less. I mean, just look at the Medici's, the Lombards, than they ever charged in it. Ultimately, we're not going to discuss this today, these Jewish communities, they were expelled so many times from Western Europe and sometimes permanently, that they ended up going to Eastern Europe, to Poland and Lithuania, 
which I think will be in three lectures from now we'll discuss. And with them, they took their customs, they took their German language, Yiddish, they took their German and French, Minhagim, the Ashkenazic Minhagim, and Ashkenazic Jewry would really leave Western Europe to a large extent as far as being a dominant force there, and the dominant force of Ashkenazic Jewry would end up being in Eastern Europe, in what's today Russia, Lithuania, Poland, Hungary, and not France and Germany. It is impossible to imagine how ridiculous and how wild the accusation started to be coming against the Jews. Amongst the more wild ones were the blood libels. The first blood liable was in 1144 in Norwich, England, where the Jews were charged with kidnapping a Christian, Christian baby, draining the baby of blood, and this charge was, would be charged dozens of times in the next couple hundred years against the Jews. The most famous of all blood libels, actually Alex Sidorovsky dropped me an email today from his visit to England, um, was a view of Lincoln in 1255. This view of Lincoln was, and we'll discuss it a detail or two, was so immortalized. He's made an insane to you. He was, he was part of the canon of English and Scottish ballads compiled by Francis James Child in the 19th century. Perhaps so, for those who remember their English literature, the most famous blood libel, at least mentioned, is by Geoffrey Chaucer. England's most famous uh, author, arguably up there with Shakespeare, is Mr. Chaucer. Well, if you read his Canterbury Tales, and you read the Priors' tale carefully, what does it say? Look at the next source. From the time, that time forward, these Jews conspire to chase this innocent child from the earth's face down a dark alleyway they found and hired a murderer who owned the secret palace place. And as the boy passed at his happy pace, this cursed Jew grabbed him and held him, slit his little throat and cast him into a pit. Canterbury Tales. Generations of English people read this story about the Jew murdering a Christian child. I'm sure that was great for their education and edification and their love for Jews. Now, why would Jews need Christian blood? What would would be the incentive to Jews blood? Well, there are four reasons that the Christians themselves gave, and we'll get to them soon. Basically, Jews suffered from hemorrhoids as a punishment for killing Jesus. And drinking blood was the best cure for hemorrhoids at the time. Number two, all Jewish men menstruate and need a monthly blood transfusion. This is not a joke. These were the reasons given. Jewish men, when circumcised, lose so much blood because of that, a surgical procedure, they, that surgical they need Christian blood to replenish the blood of the circumcision. Number four, it's the ingredient of matzah. Well, who doesn't have matzah with blood? You see a very important lesson here. When it comes to anti-Semitism, you can say anything about the Jews. <laughs> right? And people will believe it. Right? You read some of the claims that are made to our this day. I mean, you go on any Christian hate rate website, right? especially you know some of the more intellectual ones, and they say radical things about, about the Jews, and contradictory things about the Jews. 
the blood libel makes so little sense when you think about Christian um, himself. Because in the same time when these blood libels became common, the 13th century, the Christians indoctrinated the doctrine of transubstantiation, which is basically that when they had a mystical idea, which the Catholics to this day believe, that when the priest says mass over the wafer wine, this turns to the body and blood of their Savior, of Jesus. And all Catholics, of course, when they eat the, the wafers and um, the wine, they view themselves as eating the blood of Jesus. I, I, mean, I, 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 I can't figure out why that makes sense in the theology. And I asked, you know, innocently, counsel, I never got a clear answer why you would do that, eat your God, but go figure. Um, but the accusations for this got more well. They then accused Jews of stealing the wafers to torture the wafers, which is to torture their savior. And they so they accused Jews, and they, if you look at Christian literature, and just like Chaucer, you will find the most prominent, I mean, Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice, you can see in, throughout Christian literature, I mean, for the most part, the Jew is viewed as subversive, if not evil, and the devil. Um, so the, the Jews would cut the, the wafers into pieces and torture the wafers. They are eating the wafers, but the Jews torture the wafers. It would be funny, but thousands of Jews were killed because of this. Okay, there were German towns that were wiped out because of the accusation of stealing the wafers of the communion. But back to blood libel. So what did they say when the Jews did the blood libel? They said they, in the original blood libels of in Norwich, a view of uh, of Lincoln, of of Simon of Trent, they would steal the kid, the Jews, and, and they got they embellished on it. They got they got more levels as this went on. They would steal a kid. They'd be under a tribunal of Jewish rabbis who would judge the kid. And then they would torture him, crucify him, and take his blood either for some kind of occult purpose or um, for matzahs or for some other divine reason. Look at the next um, quote. This is Harvard professor of history, Walter LaCroix. Altogether, there have been 150 recorded cases of blood libel, not to mention thousands of rumors, that resulted in the arrest and killing of Jews throughout history, most of them in the Middle Ages. In almost every case, Jews were murdered, sometimes by a mob, sometimes following torture in a trial. One of the famous cases we mentioned last week, last lecture, was the Jews of Blois, which is the last... Um, few weeks of the life of Rabbeinu Tam, the grandson of Rashi, where they wiped off a whole city just because a semi-literate peasant who had been told by his preacher that Jews use blood for matzahs, told somebody he thinks a Jew killed a Christian child, they found no child, but because he told somebody that, they wiped out the city of Blois on the 20th of Sivan until maybe a few generations ago, Jews fasted on that day Throughout, it's actually in Shochan Arach, to fast on the 20th of Sivan because of the city of Blois where Jews were wiped out, there will never be a Jewish community there again. The bizarre thing is that if any people in the world have an aversion to eating blood, it is the Jews. Anyone who eats kosher food, meat, the first thing you mark is going to be, well, this meat's a little bit more salty than, my, than the meat I'm used to. You know why? Because it's completely forbidden to eat blood. Right? The Bible is one that says over and over, it's forbidden to eat blood in your meats, your, your animal meats. Human blood, 
right? Whether it's human sacrifices or anything else, the Bible says over and over again, over and over again, we have nothing to do with blood. The Jews are the most averse people to blood. We have nothing to do with, it, with anything we eat. Why would they think of all people, us, that we would eat blood? So there's, there is a rational reason. I'll tell you what Rabbi Yehoshua says. Rabbi Yuval, you saw Yaakov Yuval is a pr- professor of the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. He gave one of the better reasons, so I'll quote his reason. He argued that the Christians, the, the first blood libel of the Middle Ages happened shortly after the Crusades. That when the Christians saw that the Jews were willing to con- kill their own kids, to save them for conversion, they said, if they can kill their own kids for, right, to save them, they certainly can kill our kids. So when they saw the Jews kill their own kids, they presuppose that they'll kill other kids as well. Rabbi Khan Wasserman says, he asked this question, and it's called, it's my marm. He says, how could they be the accused of Jewish people of eating, needing blood? We had nothing to do with that. So he said, it was a punishment for the brothers taking the coat of Joseph and dipping it in blood. Okay? He said, this is all part that tshuva was never done. He talked about eternal ramifications. Tshuva was never done and it was a, a punishment. Now I want to just go through briefly some of the more famous blood libels to our very day. Right? There was a Thomas of Cambrai which was, uh, who wrote that based on a Jewish convert that be a, right, this is in, 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 in one of the famous things that the, when the Jews called out to Pontius Pilate Pilate and Matthew his, which is of course made up his blood be on us and on our children they were affected with hemorrhoids as he said and a learned Christian told, convert a convert a convert to Christianity some people say it was Nicholas Donnan who was a self-hating Jew when he converted and, and was and you know, was constantly um, instigating against the Jews, told them this, that the Jews, to get away from their hemorrhoids, need to drink Christian blood. And therefore, they were, do- they were doing blood libels to fix their hemorrhoids. In the case of little uh, U of Lincoln, a, a U was found by a lady named Beatrice. Now, if any kid got killed, you know, you had any murderer kill a kid, a father kills his son, well, he doesn't want to say he killed his son, so you blame it on the Jews. It's a very good scapegoat to have. So you would have people would kill somebody and then blame the Jews. And we'll see that happen that very often they caught murderers and they blame the Jews for it. So when U of Lincoln was killed, um, they, they, they found, um, they, it was found in a pit um, of a Jew named Copen. So again, so you throw the body there. So the judge told Copen, John Lexington, just admit and we'll, we'll let you off. He admitted, you know, under persecution. But the king, Richard, our friend of uh, Queen Richard, went ahead and said, no, no, no. He killed, you, he killed Copen and dozens of other Jews. In Baden, there was a blood libel where a seven-year-old girl was killed. Actually, afterwards, they found out it was killed by a different lady. But in the meantime, they blamed the Jews and killed dozens of Jews. Then there were miracle cases of where these children came alive and pointed at the Jews or did all kinds of miracles. There's one case in Germany in Oberweisel where Emperor um, Rudolf, in time of Emperor Rudolf, where supposedly this 11-year-old Werner right, flew up the Rhine with a, with a radiance 
an investigative healing powers blamed the Jews for killing him. <laughs> and Jews were killed throughout. Simon of Trent um, was killed. And people blamed the Jews, again, with no reason to blame them, but the, the Jews were doing blah, blah. He was made into a saint. <laughs> he was canonized. And a lot of these little children were canonized. They were made into saints because they were killed uh, by, by Jews. Christopher of Toledo, uh, or Christopher LaGuardia, the Holy Trial of LaGuardia, um, was murdered, and he blamed two Jews and three conversos. A, he was canonized by Pope Pius VII in 1805. He's now been taken off the canon, okay? Because almost all historians feel that this Christopher of Toledo was purposely killed, or purposely banned on the Jews, in order to instigate against them during the Spanish Inquisition. Right? But he was a perfect father. In Slovakia, there was a case of, of, a, of a blood libel, um, where it created a cult of people following this little kid, blaming the Jews for doing Balaos, and so on and so forth. Um, then more modern days, in 1840, there was the Damascus affair, where they accused Jews of killing Christians in Damascus, with Moses Montefiore had to get involved in. In 1899, in Austria, in Vienna, of all places, in 1899, there was the Holzner affair, where a Jew was without cause blamed for killing two Christian ladies. In 1903, in Kishinev, there was a program which was broadcast throughout the world. The reason being is that Jews were accused of blood libel. 49 Jews were killed, and this, by the way, was, was instigated by the Roman Tsar. Uh, you know, is to put, you know, because Russia was already getting um, uh, unruly in the, in the 20th, early 20th century. In 1910, Shiraz the city in Iran actually had a blood libel. It was in the Muslim world. The entire Jewish quarter of Shiraz was pillaged. Twelve Jews were murdered. Fifty were injured. In Kiev, one of the most famous trials of the 20th century, Menachem Mendel Bayless, the Bayless trial, which the New York Times and all the American papers had, they had a trial. You have to remember, this is a trial. Now, the, the Tsar, this was a setup trial. There's a trial going on they put Menachem and Obelis, accuse him of making, t- killing Christians for the blood of matzahs. And in New York, 1928, in the city of Messina, a Christian kid was found dead, and he was blamed it on Jews. In 1946, in Kils, right, we know that Kils was, was a pogrom for Polish, against Polish Jews after the Holocaust. The Kils massacres was the last step. That's where Jews never went back to Poland. I, they were scared to go back after the Kils massacre. The impetus was a blood libel for the Kils pogroms. There was a book. Now, of course, every Christian canard, crazy story, the later day Muslim anti-Semites agitators were going to take, pick up. So, in 1986, the Syrian Minister of Defense wrote a book called The Matzah of Zion. <laughs> What do you think the Matzah of Zion was about? It was based on the protocols of the elders of Zion and on the Damascus of uh, blood libel of 1840 and accused the Jews of killing others for blood. This book is actually quoted in a United Nations conference by the Syrian delegate in 1991. In 2003, um, the 
in Lebanon, for the whole Lebanon population, Lebanese population, Almanar, which is run by Hezbollah, ran a series called Al-Shatat, the Diaspora, based on the protocols of El Zion, and amongst that film was the blood libel for all of Lebanese just seven years ago to watch. But believe it or not, just five years ago in good old Russia, there's a letter of 500. And amongst them, there were party, people from the Liberal Democrats, the Communists, and the Nationalist Motherland Party who wrote about the Jewish threat to Motherland Russia and accused, amongst other things, the Jews of killing Christians for blood. And even in Israel, the head of the northern branch of the Islamic movement in northern Israel in 2007 said, this is a quote, we have never allowed ourselves um, to need the bread that breaks the fast in Ramadan for blood. Whoever wants a more thorough explanation of Jews killing for blood, let them ask what happened to some children in Europe whose blood was mixed in the dough of the Jewish holy bread. 2007 in Israel. Um, there were denunciations. Pope Gregory X had one of them. Uh, the most famous is Pope Innocent IV. That's the next source. Certain of the clergy and princes, nobles, and great lords of your cities and the asses of, have falsely devised certain godless plans against the Jews, unjustly depriving them by force of their property and appropriating it themselves. They falsely charged them with dividing up amongst themselves on Passover the heart of a murdered boy in their malice. They ascribe every murder wherever it chanced to occur. Right? The murder could be on the other side of town. <laughs> it could be miles away. It must be a Jew. The Jews killed him. No Jews were seen by us. It must be a Jew. They need blood. This little boy was found in the forest. It must be the Jews. And on the ground of these and other fabrications, they are filled with rage against them, rob them of their possessions without any formal accusation, without confession, and without legal trial and conviction contrary to the privileges granted them by the Apostolic See. Whenever any unjust attacks upon them come under your notice, redress their injuries, and do not suffer them to be visited in the future by similar tribulations. Well, if you have all these radical um, accusations, guess what's going to happen when the greatest tragedy in European history, probably, till World War I, the Black Plague is going to occur in Europe. The Black Plague will hit Europe in 1347. Most say it came from China, which lost half of its population around that time. Starting in Crimea, working its way um, to Genoa, people say by, by the sailors in 1347. The 14th century Black Plague, Bubonic Plague, killed an estimated 75 to 200 million people in the 14th century, okay? That was approximately 45 to 50 percent, 45 to 50 percent of the European population died in a four-year period. Um, historians actually are, say today that in some areas it was 75 to 80 percent, like in Spain and southern France. In Germany and England it was closer to 20 percent. Half of Paris, this population of 100,000 people died, in Italy, from the population of Florence in 1338 was 110,000. Population just 13 years later in 1351 was 50,000. 60% of Hamburg died in the Black Plague. When you had this 
amount of numbers. And you know, they were they didn't you know they didn't shower. You know, Rome and Greece are famous for the bathhouses. It's clear that the population in the Dark Ages in Europe were very very unclean. Okay, and they were clobbered by this black plague. Okay, the, you have to imagine, and no one could control it. The church promised to heal it, and the first people to die were the, the monks because they ran the hospitals. Okay, they died first. The church would lose a lot of credence at this time, and you had people called flagellants. There were at one point eight hundred thousand flagellants. These were people going around whipping themselves, which actually spread the plague throughout Europe, saying that the end of time is near. If you look at any of the literature, art of the time, songs, they're all morbid, talking about death, talking about destruction, showing pictures of the angel death. The church was not considered a viable option, but no one knew who to blame. How did this plague, and why is this plague affecting? Well, we looked at the Jews, and the Jews had a lower death rate. Why? Well, the Jews go to the mikvah, <laughs> one, so we automatically bathe. The Jews wash their hands every time they eat, and thanks to the Christians, we were very often living on the outskirts of town. We weren't amongst the regular population. Moreover, the Jews did a very peculiar thing. Every year on Rosh Hashanah, they went to the wells, and they went to the rivers and prayed. We call that Tashlech. What were they doing? They must be cursing the wells. They must be praying that pestilence comes to the world. And it's cause of them that we are, this is happening to us. Right? If you look at the next source, and I mean, this goes on and on, you will see that the Jews were murdered from the beginning already. This plague comes in the beginning of 1348. Right? The plague starts coming by 1348 in northern Spain, there are already massacres in, Bar- in Bar- Barcelona. If you look at 1349, I'm skipping some of them, to Basel, Switzerland, the guilds brought up charges against the Jews, accusing them of poisoning the wells. Despite an attempted defense of the town council, 600 Jews, together with the rabbi, were burnt to death. 140 children were taken from their parents and forcibly baptized. The victims were left unburied, the cemetery destroyed, and the synagogue turned into a church. The remaining Jews were expelled, and they were from the year 1349 till 1869, Jews were not allowed into Basel, Switzerland. Spire, all Jews were forcibly converted or murdered. Next at Valentine's Day in Strasbourg, the entire Jewish population of 2,000 people were dragged to a cemetery and burnt to death. Only those who accepted Christianity were allowed to live. Okay? Jews were not, uh, were, were, were officially banned for 200 years, for 100 years, but ultimately for financial reasons, let them in after 20 years. Um, 1349 goes all the way to the end in Mainz and in Breslau. After a mob marched into the Jewish quarter of Mainz, this was the same Mainz that 100, uh, 200, 50 years early, 250 years earlier were wiped out in the Crusades carrying a flag with a cross 300 young Jews tried to defend themselves although as many as 200 attackers were killed they soon overcame the defenders rather than be converted Jews set their home house on fire 6,000 Jews died in Mainz and another 4,000 Jews died in Breslau the 
net result, as I mentioned, is that the Jews would always look at Christians different. They would also leave Western Europe and go to Eastern Europe. But before they did, already starting in Italy, if the Jewish people, if the Jewish people could go ahead and pollute the water and endanger us, we don't want them to live around us. They're dangerous people. They're involved in the occult. So we're going to separate the Jews. We're going to give them into a ghetto. Now, the word ghetto is only first used in Venice in 1516. A ghetto is, means in Italian a foundry or an ironworks. It means a place where metal was smelted. A smelly place. They put the Jews in a ghetto. Now, the worst part of living in a ghetto is that you're an easy target. Now, whenever on Easter or on Christmas, very often, if you wanted to have a program or you wanted to have some fun, you knew where to find the Jews. There was a plus to the ghetto, and we'll discuss that later when we talk about the Enlightenment, is that Jews had a very thorough Jewish experience. Right? There was no intermarriage in the ghetto. There was very little assimilation uh, in the ghetto because Jews didn't have an option of assimilating. Right? And they were also were very, very much reinforced of their identity. This would go forward, and we'll end here. You know, I, I mentioned this is a little bit of a depressing lecture. But at some level, I believe that the fact that we're here tonight, the fact that we're still here, is the greatest sign of God's, but for the grace of God, that we're still here. But for the grace of God, you can imagine, with all the crusaders marching into Jerusalem, that who is in Jerusalem today? Right? It's unbelievable when you ponder it. Right? If you would be a prophet sitting in 1095, 1096, in Germany or France, if you'd be in the 13th century or the 12th century, you would look, if I, somebody would say, the Jews will one day have a country, they'd still be around a few hundred years from now in their own country, back in the Holy Land, after there was no Jewish population, the Jews, as we'll discuss in the next lecture, and the next lecture will be entitled Maimonides, Nachmanides, and the Sages of Provence, even under these 300 years, with crusades, blood libels, and black plagues, would still thrive in their Jewish literature, would still have vibrant Jewish lives. And that perhaps is the greatest takeaway point, that no matter what happens to the Jewish people throughout history, we have not only survived, but we have thrived. And the fact that I can say for myself and for people here, that you know, I'm a late, late Levite, I'm Ashkenazic as far back as I know, you know, I can imagine that my ancestors not only were around by the Black Plagues, the Crusades, I know my grandparents were around the Holocaust, and I know they were around by Kalmanitsky, right? that I'm here today, and we're here today. And with that, even though this was a very tragic lesson, and uh, important, because many Jews are completely oblivious to our past, we should be encouraged that no matter what happens, we are Hashem's people, and under all circumstances, we can not only survive, but we can thrive. The next lecture will have to be in three weeks due to, I'm going to be out of town and there are a few other things flying around here. So we'll be in three weeks. That will be on Maimonides, Nachmanis, and the Sages of Provence. Thank you.